Hey, this is Andrew, and you're listening to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. We're so thankful to be able to connect in with you for a few moments again in the course of your life, wherever you're listening to this from, whatever you're doing today, whether you're here locally in Niagara and a part of our local family, or you're connecting from outside of our region, I just want you to know again that the beating heart of our church, the the mandate that we feel that Jesus has given us is to ignite a deep hunger and longing uh, for the presence of Jesus in your life. We are called to stir up, to provoke, and to fan into flame the Holy Spirit's presence, His work, and His activity, His leadership in your life. And uh, so I genuinely, I genuinely pray that as you uh, listen into this uh, fifth week in our series, and James, Pastor Brenda is speaking this week, and she did a great job with a very difficult text. You'll actually hear her rather facetiously say that she's thankful that I gave this text to her, but she did an, a great job with it nonetheless. And there's so much to unpack with this text in particular, much more than you could in one service, certainly. But we hope that this serves to provoke and ignite in you a deep hunger and longing for Jesus and uh, the Spirit's formational work in your life for the sake of the world around you, for the sake of your family and your friends, your neighbors. Uh, So without further ado, I want to pass this off to Pastor Brenda, week five of our series in the book of James. If you've been here with us and you have your scripture journal that you've been bringing each week to take notes in, I wanna wanna see them. No, no one has them. A few, but okay, a few of you do. Okay, you're taking your notes. That's awesome. Uh, We are continuing on in chapter two today, and I'm going to invite Tracy to come and read for us this morning. She's going to read the text that we're jumping into, and just as she's coming, um, I just, uh, I want to remind us the context of what James is speaking to us in here today. You can come on up here, Tracy. Um, That this is a, a book that he has written, a letter that he has written to a Jewish audience that he says at the beginning of James is scattered abroad. So these are Jewish Christians, people who believe. They've already set their faith in Christ. They've already are part of the church, but they are scattered and they are trying to live out their faith in a world that is a little bit broken and a little bit dysfunctional. It kind of sounds the same as maybe what we're dealing with today sometimes. And so James isn't far off in giving us wisdom in how to live the Christian life. And so that's the context for how we interpret and look at James. And so I'm just going to invite Tracy to read our passage of scripture for today. But I'm going to ask you to stand once again for the reading of the word. So James 2, starting in verse 14. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? 
Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm, eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Now some may argue, some people have faith, other people have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by good deeds. You have said, sorry, you say you have faith, but you believe that there is one God, good for you. Even the demons believe this, they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called a friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Rahab, the prostitute, is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. Thank you, Tracy. You can take your seats. This is a pretty heavy chunk of scripture that we're gonna dive into today. And I have a lot of notes. I'm not gonna be able to cover or talk about everything that I wish I could about this portion of scripture, this passage from James. But I'm gonna jump right in because I wanna to get to as much of it as I can and sort of break this down for us today. James, we know, is talking throughout his book. Some people compare the book of James to the book of Proverbs from the Old Testament, that it is a lot of wisdom and just practical advice for good Christian living. And so we see that James is addressing certain struggles or issues of walking out our faith. He talks about things like facing hardships and trials. That's a struggle still for some of us, well, for all of us today, is how do we face struggles and trials in light of being Christians and walking with God. He talks about prejudice and judgment of other people. He talks about pride and humility. He talks about walking with wisdom, controlling our tongues. He talks about selfish ambition and hypocrisy. These are all things that are still struggles for many of us inside of the church today. Maybe they're a struggle in our own life, or maybe we see them somewhere else in someone else's life, and we're bumping into those things. But these are all struggles and issues that we are facing all of the time. And so we can go to James to get some wisdom from him in how to live out our faith in the middle of a very broken and dysfunctional world. How do we live different? 
How do we live as Christians as we walk into our workplaces and in our families and in environments where everyone around us is maybe not Christian and doesn't understand what we believe and how we want to live it out? How do we live in such a way that the world is impacted by the kingdom of God in the places where our feet walk? This is what James is addressing in this passage today. So the problem that James uh, talked about in his book are still the same problems or issues for us today. So his teachings are very relevant. They're wise and they're important. And that is why we are working through this book together. This is, um, you know, as we face this uh, book and, and all of the things that we've been talking about in the past weeks, I think the most important question for us to ask ourselves is how do I remain faithful to God in the middle of the brokenness around me? How do I remain faithful to God and walk out of faithfulness in what and working and, and moving in my life what I believe? How do I live this out in the world? How do I remain faithful to God in the middle of the broken world? That is the question that we keep our asking ourselves. How do I live in alignment with his kingdom? How do I live as a testimony of his goodness? Do you think about that? How do you live as a testimony of God's goodness? Would people look at your life and say, that God you serve, he must be really good. I don't know. I don't know if our lives always look like that, if we're honest. Today's text is a particularly difficult one for us. And the problem that James addresses is those who proclaim to have faith without works. So it sort of seems as he's working through this passage that there's some rhetorical questions. He's saying, you would say, but I would say, right? So it's like he's working in response to a problem that has arose in the churches or in the groups of people that he is writing to. And there's this rhetorical back and forth, like you say that you can have faith without works, but I say that you will see my faith by my works. He's having this back and forth sort of in this passage. But he's addressing the problem in the church of those who proclaim to have faith without works. And that that is enough. That I could believe that I can say I believe in God. That I could just have a mental assent to know God and say that I know him, but there would be no evidence of it in my life. James doesn't agree with this. The idea that we could compartmentalize our faith in this way is ridiculous to James. He says faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. This doesn't sit with James. He's like, no, this isn't how it works. James argues that faith and works go together and that they are completely inseparable in the Christian life. They're like hand and glove. They just go together. You can't actually take them apart from each other. Faith and works uh, work together. One of the words that's used in verse 22, um, and we'll look at this again a little later, is the word where it's a Greek word that is one of those funny words that is almost the same in English, and we use it as synergy. It's a working together that we go back and forth. There's this working together, this beautiful thing of faith and works. We see throughout this section that uh, James is referring to our faith as being perfected 
or completed or fulfilled by our good works. That there, when we are doing good things, it fulfills the call of God on our life. It fulfills the fact that we say we believe in God. It brings it to completion or perfection. They work together. So what happens when we try to separate them? If faith is separated from works, James tells us that it is useless, ineffective, it cannot save, and it is dead. Those are the four terms he uses in this passage to tell us that this isn't working. If you try to separate your faith from works, it's going to be ineffective, useless, dead, and it can't save. That's a really hard one for us to wrestle with. We're going to get to that a little bit later. Thank you, Pastor Andrew, for giving me this passage to work through. So nice. James further illustrates his point with a hypothetical situation. We read in verses 15 and 16, it says this. Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm, eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing, what good does that do? Most of the scholars that I was reading this week, I read a lot of commentaries on this this week, <laughs> till like my, uh, on Friday I was like, I texted Andrew, I'm like, my brain is just like exploding. Like I, there's so much information about this passage and a lot of people disagree. A lot of scholars who have written about this passage disagree. So it's like that wrestling through of what is right here. But most, all of them agreed that this portion of James's um, passage here is very tongue in cheek. That he would be saying that no one would ever do this. And his readers would understand no one would ever do this, especially if they were a Christian. They would never look at someone who has no food and say, well, God bless you. I hope you find some food today and walk away and not actually feed them. So this is like almost a comical way that James is trying to prove his point by saying, would you ever do that? Of course you wouldn't if you profess to be a Christian. Now, we have to remember the context of the day. There were no food banks and homeless shelters. There was no social programs or government assistance. If you didn't have food, it was often because you had no family or that your family had fallen on really hard times. And this is a culture in which just putting food on the table is like everything. And throughout scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, the law to the Jews and, and what we read in the New Testament that Jesus talks about is all about this. This is a message that's all throughout the Bible, is that God says to his people, I have provided for you and I want you to provide for the people around you. That's how the Israelites were different. They were to take in the foreigner. They were to love their neighbor. They were to give wherever they could give to help others around them. This is, this is how they were set apart, how they were set to be different. And Jesus taught the same thing, the exact same thing 
This is how my people are going to look different from the rest of the world around them. They're actually going to take care of the practical needs that they see around them because I have blessed you so much. You can bless other people. You can touch other lives because of what I've given you and provided for you. You can provide for someone else. That is the system of the kingdom of heaven and what God was putting in place in the society. So it would be preposterous for a Christian to look at this piece of scripture and think, well, yeah, I, I do that all the time. No, they would be convicted of this. They would know that this is the way that God works and has asked to work with his people. He wants to partner with his people to bring his goodness and life into the world. And one of the ways he does that is through meeting practical needs. And Pastor Andrew a few weeks ago was sharing with you that we do this all the time here as a church. We pay rent for people. We give grocery gift cards and gas gift cards so people can stay going in life. We love to meet those kinds of needs because it was, it's what God has called the church to do. It's a very practical way that we can live out our faith. And so what James is saying here is that there's something very practical that we can do and again, God's message throughout the Bible is, I will take care of you, and in turn, I'm asking you to take care of others. The people that I bring into your path, the people who you meet and see who have needs, I have given to you so you can meet those needs. In essence, this person in this hypothetical situation that James poses to us is dismissing the person with a blessing or a prayer. The way that this is worded and if you go back into the Greek language and all that, it's kind of like he's praying a blessing on him. How sad is it if someone comes to you as a Christian with a need that you could meet and you just say, well, God bless you. I'm gonna pray that God meets that need somehow and send them on their way. That's sad that we would think that that is enough and be unwilling to recognize the opportunity to be the hands and feet of Jesus in a very practical situation. James is addressing a very selfish attitude of the heart, one that is inconsistent with the kingdom of God. James says that if you say you believe in God and you act this way, your faith is useless. That word useless has a few definition terms Idle, lazy, thoughtless, unprofitable, barren, and even able to cause injury. I don't want my faith to be like that. I don't want my faith to be like that. James moves on to another reference to build his case for useless faith. In verses 19 and 20, we read this. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God, good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Now, I want to break this down a little bit, and I'm going to reference um, when Jesus came into contact with someone who was demon-possessed. In Mark 5, verses 6 and 8, we read this, and then I'm going to Talk it through a little bit. When Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him, and bowed low before him. With a shriek, he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. 
For Jesus had already said to the spirit, come out of the man, you evil spirit. So we see here demonstrated that whatever was inside of this man recognized Jesus coming from a distance. And he ran to him and said, don't bother me, (laughs) leave me alone. So even the demons know Jesus, they know God. If we look at the Bible as a whole, we know that demons are actually fallen angels. They were in the presence of God. They are created by him and know they are at his mercy. They know that he has authority over them and will judge them according to their works. And their works are not good. They're actually really bad. It says they tremble at his presence. Why do they tremble? Because they know what's coming. They know what their fate is. They know they're going to be judged according to the things that they're doing and the havoc that they are, they are having in the human race and on the earth today. They believe in God, but their belief does not lead to good works. So it is possible to believe, to say that we believe in God. But this is a rather extreme point James is making here. Do you want to be like them? Do you really want to say you believe in God and that's it? Is this a life of faith you want to settle for? Is this what you want to be known for? That you're just the same as as the demons, every other created being? How foolish, James says to have such a useless kind of faith. These verses that we read today are not contrasting faith versus works. They're contrasting a truth faith versus a false faith. I'm gonna say that again, because if you're taking notes, you should write that one down. They are not contrasting faith versus works. That's not what we're talking about today. It's not one or the other. They go together. We're contrasting true faith and a false faith. And so the question that we have to wrestle with when we read this portion of scripture is what kind of faith do I have? Is it real? Is it true? Or is it ineffective, useless, and dead? And we can't talk about this portion of scripture without at least taking a few moments to acknowledge the most problematic line in the text. James posing that rhetorical question, can this kind of faith save anyone? Hold up a sec. What is James saying here? Is he saying that I'm not even saved? Is he saying that if my faith is not producing good works in my life, I'm not saved? I grew up in church. I remember learning the Roman road. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The gift of God is eternal life. I remember this stuff. So what is James saying? How do we reconcile these things? Where does grace fit into all of this? And isn't this in direct contradiction to what Paul wrote in the book of Romans? There's a lot of questions here that come up because of this portion of scripture. 
And as I was reading about it and reading all these commentaries, I'm realizing people have argued and debated and, and been torn apart by this little piece of scripture for a long time. Thanks again, Pastor Andrew, for giving me this one today. It's one of the most controversial scriptures in all of the Bible. I think it's way above my head and I know it's above my pay grade. Scholars have been debating this forever <laughs> and I don't claim to know all of the answers and I can't cover all of the nuances of this today. But we wouldn't be doing this passage justice if we didn't attempt to work through this a little bit. So we're gonna tease it out a little, okay? If you just hang on with me here. Are you good so far? Right. So James does go on in our passage to use two examples from the Old Testament of people whose faith and action work together. And this is where we get that word synergy, that it's working together and whose faith was made complete by their works. And the two examples he gives us are Abraham and Rahab. And we're gonna dive a little deeper into Abraham because Paul also talks about Abraham. And we're gonna look at Paul's uh, rendition of that versus James's in just a moment. Abraham was a very likely candidate for James to use in terms of talking about faith and works because he was the forefather of faith. Everyone looked to Abraham. If you're talking about faith at all, you look to Abraham. So he's a very likely candidate for James's little interlude here. Rahab is a very unlikely candidate. She was a woman and she was a Gentile. And if you remember the story of Rahab, she hid the spies and then she put the red cord outside so when they came back to take over the city, her life was spared and she was saved. And I wonder, even though you know everyone in the commentary said it's so unlikely that he put Rahab in there, I wonder if she was a fan favorite because of her boldness and her bravery, and because of what she did actually saved some Israelite men. I wonder, I wonder, that's just my own musing. I wonder if she's just a fan favorite, if they're just like, oh, Rahab, yeah, she was cool. <laughs> I like her, I like her. So I wanna go on to read, you can look at that a little bit more on your own, what he says about Abraham and Rahab there. But both of them, he says, their faith and their works come together in synergy and they worked together to save them. Now I wanna read from Romans four. I'm gonna read what, from Romans four, what Paul says about this. And then we're gonna jump back and read James, what James said about it. And then we're gonna talk about that a little bit, okay? It says in Romans 4, verses 1 through 5, Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. For the scriptures tell us Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. When people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they have earned. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in the God who forgives sinners. And now I'm gonna read James's take on this same topic from verses 21 to 24. 
He says, don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together, synergy. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened, just as the scripture says, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. That's the same portion that Paul just quoted. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. So at first read, these portions of scripture seem to be contradictory. They seem to be in conflict with each other. But I would argue that Paul and James actually very much do agree. And they are building cases for different things. Paul, in the book of Romans, is building a case for, um, for a faith that leads to salvation. And James is working through his letter teaching those already professing Christians how to live the life that God has called them into. So we're looking at two different things. Notice that both Paul and James had said that Abraham believed God and God counted him righteous because of his faith. Paul says people are counted as righteous not because of their work, but because of their faith in a God who forgives sinners. And James adds that Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions. I believe that Paul is talking about the kind of faith that births new life. And James is talking about the kind of faith that sustains new life. Paul is talking about that gift when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and we recognize that God wants a relationship with us and we step into his kingdom, invited by his call to be his children. That's what Paul is building his case for, that moment of salvation. But James is building a case for what it means to live that out for the rest of our lives. We know that salvation is the work of Christ alone. No one is refuting that. There is no work that we can do to add to what Christ has already done. The faith that's saved cannot be based on works. It can't. Because of Christ, there's nothing that we can do to add or take away from what Christ has already done and accomplished. He did the work that not one of us could ever do to bring us to a saving grace, to bring us to a moment of faith and belief in him. It is the gift of salvation and it is based on the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. Our salvation is complete through the work of Christ and what he accomplished for us on the cross. We cannot do anything to earn our salvation. I see people in the church all of the time still trying to earn their way with God. Whenever we ask questions like this, this, this bad thing's going on in my life. Do you think that God's mad at me? Maybe I didn't do this right or maybe I didn't do enough. No, he's not. We ask these questions that make it sound like we need to earn our salvation because I feel like that's sometimes something running in the back of our mind. Like there's something we can do to make it up to God. We can't. Jesus did it all for us. 
And the last thing that Christ will accomplish to complete our salvation is to come again and to bring us into his presence and to bring us home to rule and reign with him where we will be made complete and everything that he set out to do will be restored and finished in that moment. And there's nothing any of us can do to add to that or take away from it. We are saved, not by the things that we do, but by what Christ has done for us. There's no works that we can add to being saved. That's just the place though where our faith begins. James knows we can't add anything to what Christ has done. But the knowledge of what Christ has done should change us from the inside out. When we experience God's love, when we come to an understanding of his grace that brings us to our knees and we cross over from darkness to light and we live in his kingdom, it should produce in us the desire to want to do good things. It should produce in us the desire to want to carry his kingdom and his nature to other people that we have tasted and seen the Lord is good. And now I want you to taste and see it too. And I don't mind being the hands and feet of Jesus to meet your practical need so that you can see that there is a God who loves you and cares about you and is good and wants to take care of you. The faith that we have in Jesus should spur us on to good works. When we think about the day that we came to our knees, when we think about the day that our eyes were open and we realized that God loved us, that should spur us to want to do things, to make his name great, to glorify him in our world and to bring others to taste what we have tasted of, the goodness of God. That's what stirs inside of the hearts of those who have been saved by grace alone. The works that this kind of love spurs us onto are works of goodness and kindness, mercy and compassion. They are works that express the heart of God into the world around us. They are works that say, I don't wanna just tell you about God. I wanna show you what he is like. They're works that indicate our hearts have been softened by the heart of God and that we carry the things that stir his heart into this world. And they're works that prove that his life and very heartbeat is alive and working inside of us. James used this expression that this kind of faith is dead like a body, like a corpse that has no breath in it. Our faith is alive when we are working it out. It has breath and life moving through it. And this work isn't drudgery. It's an overflow of blessing. It isn't labor. It's our reward. It's, it's this idea that we get to participate in the work that God is doing here on earth. We get to partner together with him to do the good things that he has called us into. Paul does not sit in conflict with James. And we see this as it's written so beautifully in some of the other places that Paul gave, you know, ink to paper. 
In Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, he says it this way. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift of God, from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. So we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. There was nothing good that we could do before Jesus came into our life. There was nothing good that we could do. But now that he's there and he's animating our lives and he's filling us with his spirit, we can do the things that he planned for us to do long ago, the good works that he has called us into. I also love the scripture where Paul says, I want to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. I want to walk in the plans and purposes he has for my life. I want to be a witness for him in this world. I want people to see his goodness and his grace and his love in my life. I want them to just taste a little bit of what he's like when they come into my world. Paul also says in Galatians 5, listen, I, Paul, tell you this, if you're counting on circumcision to make you right with God, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. I'll say it again. If you are trying to find favor with God by being circumcised, you must obey every regulation in the whole law of Moses. For if you're trying to make yourself right with God by keeping the law, you've been cut off from Christ. You have fallen away from God's grace. But we who live by the Spirit eagerly wait to receive by faith the righteousness God has promised to us. For when we place our faith in Christ, there is no benefit in being circumcised or uncircumcised. And here's our key. What is important is faith expressing itself in love. Paul there is saying the same thing that James is. The exact same thing. It's faith expressing itself in love. That's the important thing. Not that you're doing everything right. Not that you have to cross every T and dot every I and like do all of the things. It's not earning. It's not getting inside of the box. You're in the box. <laughs> now we just have to live like we are. Faith expressing itself in love. The kind of love that God carries. The kind of love that is the currency of his kingdom should be the kind of thing that we are expressing in our lives all of the time that shows the world that we actually believe what we say. If we don't, that's hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is the number one enemy of the church, not the devil. It's what we do to ourselves, unfortunately. I don't want to live in hypocrisy in my faith. We will make mistakes. There's grace. If we're in humility, God can still work in that. But I want to take hold of the things for which God took hold of my life. So Paul and James agree. We're saved by faith alone. But once we are saved, our faith does not remain alone. I say that one again too, because it's not mine. I borrowed it from somebody else. Paul and James agree, we are saved by faith alone, but once we are saved, our faith does not remain alone. We step into a life 
that God has called us to, where he has already in advance prepared good works for us to do. He will bring people across your path who need your help. It's a way that you can express the love of God into our world. God begins to transform us as we have entered into his kingdom, we get saved. He begins to work in our lives and he transforms us. And he transforms us into people who can actually carry and demonstrate his kingdom. And that's not just a transformation of our head. It's not just what we believe. It's not just our thoughts. It's not a mental ascent. He doesn't only change what we think. He desires to change our hearts, what we believe and what we desire. And he desires to change our hands, the things that we do. It's a full life transformation. Everything changes. It's a holistic transformation that God has called us into. What Paul calls faith expressing itself in love is the same kind of faith that James is trying to tell us about, a faith that isn't useless, ineffective, and dead, but a faith that is productive and useful, that pulsates with the very breath of God that is fulfilled and made complete when we step out in compassion and do something kind for someone else, a faith that spurs us to good works. And here's our landing point today. I'm going to circle back to the question I asked a little bit earlier, because this is our takeaway for today from this complicated and complex piece of scripture. Our takeaway is simply this. What kind of faith do I have? Is it something that stirs and has life inside of me? Or do I sometimes feel like, you know, dead and useless might be the words I would use? I remember growing up in church and, and for the most part coming up under my parents' faith and realizing that that wasn't enough for me. That I actually had to make it real for myself. And I remember feeling like the things, you know, the good works God was calling me to felt like drudgery. They felt hard. But I've learned that when I surrender my heart to him, and when I ask him to lead in these areas of my life where I wanna be selfish, and I wanna hold back, but really do want him to work, that he's willing to take those places and transform them and use them for his glory. So my question for us today is what are we holding back? What area of our life might be that area where we need to ask God to come in and breathe life back into it. Our faith is meant to be something that is alive and working in our lives, changing us and impacting the world around us. Do you have a true faith that spurs you onto good works or a faith that feels a little bit ineffective and dead? And it's okay if you do. Like I said earlier, there's grace. And if we're walking in humility and we're asking God to help us, he will. We're not perfect. We just want to do the best we can to live the life that God has called us into. That's all we want. And I want to be clear about one thing before we end today. 
There is, this is not, um, how can I say this the best way? There is no reason for you to question your salvation. This isn't a, a, an opportunity for you to go, maybe I'm not even saved. Maybe it is. <laughs> but that's not a problem. Christ took care of that. And if you're not saved, if you're here sitting here today, you don't even know why you're here. Maybe a friend dragged you here, your parents. Maybe you're not saved. Maybe you haven't crossed that line and you're, you like don't even really know what I'm talking about. Today could be your day. I'm sure that as you're sitting here, there's a conviction. God is pulling on your heart. Come into the life that I've planned for you. Do the things that I've called you to. But if you are a Christian, and you're sitting here, there is no, this is not condemnation. There is no reason for you to question the validity of your salvation, the assurance of your salvation. The Bible teaches, and I don't have time to get into all of this today, that the Holy Spirit seals those things inside of our hearts, that we don't have to question. We, we can be assured that we are saved we sit comfortably and at rest in the hand of God. We don't have to be all scared and upset. Oh, I ha you know, maybe I haven't done the right things. Maybe I'm not saved. No, that's not what I'm saying here today. You can be assured of your salvation, but still need to work things out in the process of growing to be more like Christ. I want you to stand with me here at the end. I want you to close your eyes for a moment. And I just want you to ask yourself that question. What kind of faith do I have? Tomorrow is our day of prayer and fasting. And this may be something you wanna carry into the next 24 hours to bring to God over and over in this coming day and ask him, where do you want to work in my life? Are there more areas I need to surrender to you? Are there places that I'm being selfish and holding back? Are there places where my pride doesn't want to let you work in my life? Are there ways that I have professed to know you but have failed to let your love change me. Would you ask Jesus just to bring those to your attention right now? And if something comes up, I want you to just bring it under the covering of the blood of Christ, under his grace for you. In humility, we can just ask for forgiveness and ask how he wants to work in us to change this aspect of our life. Like I said, this may be something you wanna carry into prayer and fasting over the coming day. But God, I pray that right now, you would seal deep inside of our hearts the assurance of our salvation or convict us of the need for your salvation. And I pray that everyone who professes to be your child will be covered with your love right now. 
I pray that the words that we've heard today will um, spring up inside of us like life-giving fountain of water. That when you put people in our path this week, we wouldn't pause, we would respond out of the goodness of what you have done for us, we would respond by doing the good things you have called us to do. Jesus, we lay our full lives on the line before you right now. We ask that you would come, lead us and guide us. Speak into the places that still need your touch. Bring your grace over us today, Jesus. We love you. We wanna be faithful to the call that you have put on our lives. We wanna be faithful to what you want for us. I'm just gonna end by praying. I have this sense just in my spirit that there might be people here today who feel like you haven't been faithful to the call that God has put on your life. That portion of scripture that we read from Paul that God has good works laid out for you. I just sense that maybe there's people here who would say, I haven't been walking in those things that God has called me to. I know I haven't. For whatever reason, it doesn't matter. But if you wanna make that right today, I'm just gonna ask you to be bold and slip your hand up into the air because I'm gonna ask a few people to pray for you. If you see someone with your hand, their hand up around you, I'm gonna ask you to just go and put a hand on them and we're gonna pray because God is good. It's okay, you can move around, please. Go in and just stand by someone who has their hand up. Let them know they're not alone. We're a family, we do this together. Thank you. So God, you see these hands raised before you, this cry of our heart that we wanna be faithful to what you have called us to. For whatever reason, these precious, precious saints feel like maybe they haven't been faithful. So God, I pray right now that you would pour your love and your grace into them. I pray that you would fill them once again with your precious spirit. I pray that you would remind them that you are a God of grace, that you love them deeply, that there's nothing they could ever do that could, that could remove them from your hand and your care and your provision over them but that you have called them into something and you still want to do that in their life. They are not disqualified. I feel like that's a word someone is just having echo around in their mind. You are not disqualified. You are called. And God has some plans and things he wants to do with your life. If you're willing to surrender everything, everything, and let him work. So God, I pray that you would come, that you would work in miraculous and powerful ways in these people's lives, that you would reignite inside of them the gifting and the passion and the things that you have called them to, that you would call them even in the coming days and weeks to step up into the things that you have called them to, the good works you planned for them long ago. God, we just wanna be found faithful to you. We just want to be found faithful to you. Lead us in that, Jesus. We give you everything. In your name we pray. Amen.